Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. This is The Lonely Hour, produced by Pale Groove. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. I'm an editor and a writer, mainly about food. But I also have a lot of feelings, loneliness being one of them. I want to explore that feeling because it's pervasive, but the literature on it is not. Each episode of The Lonely Hour is going to focus on a particular topic, whether it's a community or a profession, an age group, or an activity that seems to arouse feelings of loneliness or aloneness. That could be mental illness, for example, or it could be social media's effect on us. It could even be motherhood. The idea is to catalog tidbits on this very human feeling, because we all feel lonely sometimes. I want to explore how we feel it. Loneliness could be more of a cause than a symptom in some of our commonly recognized mental health issues. Human closeness is fundamental to our mental well-being. The loneliness that arises from a lack of human closeness could easily bring about any number of presenting problems. These words were written by Kira Asastrian, a certified relationship coach, professional coach, and loneliness expert. Here she is talking more about the link between loneliness and mental illness. So right now there is kind of a paradigm in psychology and mental health um, that's based on the DSM, uh, which is how people, how like therapists diagnose mental illness and mental disorders in people. Mm -hmm. Um, And loneliness is not one of those. It's not in there. It's not a diagnosable mental illness. Um, But it is sort of like (laughs) it pops up here and there. Like, for example in uh, the way that you diagnose somebody with depression is, a, is essentially a self-reported survey. And w- one of the questions on the survey is, uh, do I feel lonely? Um, so it's there. It's also very much there in anxiety. So it, this hasn't been studied in an excellent way because loneliness is not considered a, a mental disorder, which it's not, in my opinion. Um, but depression, anxiety, you know, addiction, those things have been studied a lot more heavily because they have this medical label that loneliness does not. I mean, it's interesting you say it's not a mental disorder. I mean, I would agree. And I'm obviously not a somebody, I'm not a therapist or, um, somebody who has the degrees that you have, but you know, (laughs) a a big part of uh, this show, if there is a goal of this show is to, is to just highlight the fact that loneliness is part of the mixed bag of the human experience. This is something that everybody feels. And um, uh, I wonder if that rings true to you or, or if you could explain more when you say like, it's not a mental disorder, then, then what is it, you know? Um, Right. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And, and even, even the, even the things that are diagnosable, like depression, anxiety, you know, my personal philosophy is that a lot of that is just the human experience as well. And it's it can be easy to latch onto those type of labels because they help explain what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is just, you know, quote unquote, normal human experience. Yeah. And loneliness totally falls into that category as well. It's like well, this is a separate thing. But um, a lot of times people going through grief um, get diagnosed with depression and, you know, grief is just part of life. And I, I look at loneliness that same kind of way. Right. Um, also referring to one of your Psychology Today articles, you said um, human closeness is fundamental to our mental well-being. And the loneliness that arises from a lack of human closeness could bring about any number of presenting problems. Um I want to get to those in in a second, um, because you talked about four areas of mental illness specifically. Um, But I wonder if you think at large, um, is our level of human closeness, closeness, excuse me, is our level (laughs) of human closeness uh, 
waning with time? I mean, do you mm-hmm. see this as sort of a real uh, epidemic, maybe too strong a word, but um, mm-hmm. is there something about the way we are living our lives in this day and age that is is leading to a rise in this feeling of loneliness and then ultimately perhaps a rise in mental illnesses since loneliness is, you know, sensibly like a catalyst to that? Yeah, I think that, you know, the cause and effect is hard to say with absolute certainty, like it's kind of, it can be a chicken and egg situation, right? You know, do you become depressed because you're lonely or vice versa? Um, but back to, you know, why relationships matter and why closeness matters. We are just deeply, deeply social creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the longest running social study that we've ever done. The, the Harvard longevity project Really, the only takeaway from that was that people need to have good relationships to feel well. And that study um, tracked the lives of Harvard men for 75 years. Mm. So it's it's powerful stuff. And the other thing is that, like, you know, the world has changed very rapidly in the last couple decades. But like but our brains are very ancient (laughs) and our brains want to be around other people. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel cared about. It makes us feel good. Yeah. So do you think because, you know, I'm thinking of like the rise of social media and some and how sometimes these uh, connections on a screen can take place uh, instead of a face to face connection or even the fact that, you know, we don't have the same village that we used to because we Mm -hmm. live these kind of global lives like you're not uh, raising children next to your the house you grew up in anymore where your mother's there to help take care of the kids. And, you know, also we have like dual professional households, right? You know, and like nannies who are raising kids and both mom and dad who are working and all these things that have changed. Um, You know, I wonder if you think we're kind of like a lonelier people than we've ever been (laughs) because of all those things. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the most recent statistic on this is that about one in five Americans is lonely. Um, and that's up probably 30% since the eighties. So even just in that short window of time, we are probably lonelier than we were just a couple decades ago. Yeah. Um, And how are we defining that? Like when we say they're lonely, at least I guess in that study, how was it defined maybe? Yeah. Almost everything is, is self-reported experience. So Mm -hmm. you get, you get like a sheet of paper that says, you know, I feel lonely frequently, never blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's self-reported. There's kind of unfortunately really limited ways to study any of these things in a way that's not biased by people's own, you know, what they're willing to say is one thing, um, what they're willing to admit, you know, right. And in, in a more like objective way, I guess you could say. Right. Um, earlier you referenced, you know, that people need good relationships to feel well. So what's a good relationship or I guess, and, and maybe what's a bad relationship or how are we, you know, I don't know what's, what's a good, uh, supportive filling, satiating relationship. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a big, big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, many, many things have been identified as things you need to have in a relationship for it to feel good. Um, some of those things include empathy. Um, you need to, what's called self-disclose or be willing to talk about yourself, um, and your private life, um, developing like interdependence. So relying on other people is a big part of it. Um, but when I started learning about all of these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of things that you're supposed to do to have a good relationship, it, it overwhelmed me personally. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of why I came up with this. Um, I call it my formula. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's closeness equals knowing plus caring. So Mm. knowing encompasses all of the getting to know somebody, understanding what motivates them, what they need, what they value. And then caring is the, is the more feelings oriented, emotional support and empathy side of things. Mm. And what are our what do you see as the major bars, you know, um, or hurdles, uh, against being able to follow that formula? Yeah, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, uh, you know, this didn't, <laughs> this wasn't the first thing that I thought of, but as I've been talking to a lot of people about loneliness, the thing that comes up over and over again is feeling vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when it comes to the knowing side of things, 
you know, people are pretty conflicted about letting people get to know their deeper selves. It can feel risky. And and especially I've noticed a lot of men have have trouble doing that in a way that women tend to have less trouble. Do you have any ideas about why that might be? I mean, the, the, is it the whole sort of puff up your chest to your man, <laughs> you know, kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, I think it is. I think I think it's socialization. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so to get to to the mental health disorders, you talked about four um, in specific uh, that are recognized mental health disorders that may spring from or be exacerbated by loneliness, and those were um, depression, social anxiety, addiction, and hoarding. So okay. I wonder if you can kind of walk us through uh, those four and how how they're examples of um, disorders that um, don't pair particularly well with loneliness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so depression is... <laughs> Depression is one of the most complicated, and it's also one of the most common things that people get diagnosed with. Hmm. Um, there is a, there's almost certainly a chemical aspect to it, um, and and we know a lot about that. But at the same time, it's fundamentally, I feel really down, and I can't, I don't know how to get out of it. It's it has to be those two things put together. I feel really down, and I feel stuck. Um, so if you think about it just in that way, I don't see any reason why, you know, a lack of relationships that feel good, it couldn't be a part of that. So a study conducted over a five year period at the University of Chicago, is that the one? Found that the presence of loneliness early in the five year span was an excellent predictor for depression later in the five year span. Right. Um, so, yeah. and you said, in fact, loneliness was an even better predictor than the presence of depression or itself early in the five-year span. So, yeah. uh, does, so loneliness may precede depression even more frequently than depression precedes depression. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's, that's, that's just one data point, of course, but, right. but that is one that, that suggests that loneliness could be the trigger, you know, that it's possible for that to be the cause and not the effect. Hmm. And then... Social anxiety. This is a big one. I mean, I feel yeah. like. Uh, yeah, I mean, this yeah. one kind of this one kind of explains itself. If you're if you're very socially anxious and yet, you know, you're a human and you desire closeness and connection to other people, it can get very overwhelming very fast. Um, and I would say that I have social anxiety. I've never been diagnosed with it because I didn't I didn't go that route. But mm-hmm. I'm sure I could be. <laughs> I'm sure I would fit the criteria. Because I do, I do get very physically nervous um, in in groups of people, and so my my workaround, and I work with a lot of people with social anxiety, um, is to reduce the amount of stimulation, because um, that's a big part of anxiety is feeling overstimulated. Mm. So maybe avoid parties. You know, that's not that's not going to be something that's going to make you feel great, like most likely. Um, and stick to more like of the quiet one-on-one things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one, it was an interesting point that you mentioned in this article. You said uh, this was in June 2015. NPR ran a story um, about how research suggests lonely people may actually have superior social skills than those who are not lonely. In other words, Lonely people are not lonely because they don't know how to talk to people. Instead, mm-hmm. the findings suggest that they struggle with relationships because they're scared of messing up. They worry about saying the wrong thing in social situations. Um, how do you, what do you see there? I don't know. What does that tell you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the real anxiety portion of it coming into play, which is a slightly self-sabotaging being worried about things that haven't happened yet or anticipating dangers where danger may not ever happen. Right. Borrowing Um, trouble. Yeah. And (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, and, and one of the classic ways to help with generalized anxiety is to first of all, confront the things that scare you because avoidance makes anxiety worse. Um, and if you can't quite do that yet, if you can't quite confront it, then imagine confronting it and do, we call it imaginal exposure to the thing that, that makes you anxious. Yeah. Okay. So walk us through like, 
an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you sit there and you imagine, I don't know, what, what's an example of something that somebody might be anxious about going to the party, let's say? Yeah, like a like a classic one is like public speaking. Almost okay. everybody is scared of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not terribly scared of it, then 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 the way to start getting over it is to actually start doing it. Um, meaning line up, you know, maybe, maybe just give a presentation at your work or something that feels semi safe, but, but a stretch. Um, and it, and if, if something like that, you know, would just throw you into a panic attack, um, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be okay. Then you just start out imagining yourself giving a presentation in front of your company or something like that. And you actually, and it's, if you do it the right way, it's timed. You make yourself go through the whole experience of doing it so that your body can acclimate to those, to the, essentially the, the fear that, mm-hmm. that gets mm-hmm. released and, and learn to adjust to it. Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, exercises really, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Another big one is addiction. And I actually, I have a whole episode on this and I considered having you on that episode because you speak nice. about it so well, but, um, but you know, all these things can be so intertwined. There's like depression and addiction, um, but certainly addiction and loneliness, whether that's because again, to, to reference the chicken and egg thing, you know, it's like mm-hmm. whether people feel isolated. So then are kind of driven to use because that fills a kind of hole or, you know, there's that example of the substance becoming kind of your one true love and you do mm-hmm. anything to protect it. Even if that means losing out on other relationships and you do actually become alone with your addiction and right. um, no one else wants to be around it. And, and you care more about the substance than, than those other relationships. Like, can so talk, I don't know if, if those things ring true to you and, and also yeah. um, um, anything else that you might think of as it pertains to addiction and loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. Everything you said is, is right on the money. Um, and you know, I'm very, I may have some experience with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us do. Um, I I'm, I'm very pleased that addiction just very recently in the last couple of years is starting to sort of be seen as more of a holistic thing. Like this is a whole trend in mental health in general, that a lot of these things that were very diseaseified are starting to be seen as like maybe just part of a spectrum of like normal human experience. Um, and that's definitely happening with addiction. Uh, it really, you know, I, I had not studied addiction in much depth until I read the book that I referenced in that article, chasing the scream, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful book. Um, and Johan Harry talks about how, what, what he has learned through his journey of researching that book was that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And yeah. essentially, if you have nothing, if you have nobody to connect to, it's, it is quite common to connect with a substance. Okay, the last one that you list in this article, and this is the one that stands out to me is probably less, like, I think most of us have experience with or have friends who have experience with either depression, social anxiety, or addiction, but hoarding is one um, mm-hmm. that you brought up as a fourth example of, um, you know, a mental illness that's, that's uh, linked closely to, to loneliness. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even know about that until I was researching that piece. Um, but yeah, so uh, basically hoarding is one expression of OCD, essentially it's on the it's on the OCD spectrum so obsessive compulsive disorder mm. um and the sort of the i don't want to say cause but I'll say cause the the root cause of OCD behaviors is fear of the unknown and a, and and a belief that rituals and routines and doing certain behaviors will stop bad things from happening mm-hmm. and so for hoarding the thing you do to stop bad things from happening is never let any objects go. Um, but what I learned through researching that piece was that one part of this for sure is that if you feel a lack of, of connection to people in your life, you can develop connections to objects that are, you know, out of proportion with what the objects actually are worth. Hmm. Um, and in a way I, I see a connection between 
the, the way that hoarding relates to loneliness and the way that addiction relates to loneliness. It's like, if you're, if you don't feel like you have support, like you have people, like you have a, a network of real life humans to make you feel good, then you will turn to something that's not humans to make you feel good. Yeah. Well, and then what's the, well, first of all, do you have any specific examples or maybe even clients of your Mm -hmm. own who've dealt with that? And then what's the, um, secondly, what's the solution? I mean, I guess you, you know, I imagine you'd have to get to wean people off of these objects, but how does that process go? Yeah. You know, that's really, that's outside of my scope of of expertise. I would say I've never worked with a hoarder who, you know, who had gotten to the point where that's what they were seeking help for. Um, and if you've ever watched the show hoarders, (laughs) you will see that it's pretty hard to get them to (laughs) to let go of their stuff. The, The thing about hoarding is that this, the stuff has taken on an importance that only makes sense to the person whose stuff it is. Right. So it's extremely hard for an outside person to like, even understand why these things matter. Um, that's why it's so isolating because it's a language that only you speak, you know? Totally. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, in my, in my world of knowing and caring stuff, if you, if you had a hoarder in your life or in your family, um, I would try to start with the knowing piece meaning just trying to understand what is motivating this behavior um, and what, you know, what part of their lives this, this stuff is trying to fill. So I want to basically ask you to walk through another article you wrote on Psychology Today. Um, this, is, this is a column you have. It's called The Art of Closeness. Um, yep. And one of the pieces is called loneliness has an antidote and you'll never guess <laughs> what it is. So what is it? And, and, you know, walk us through how it works. <laughs> yeah. So that piece is about, is, is about closeness uh, mm-hmm. as the antidote to loneliness. Um, and my, my whole theory around that is that, um, if you are with somebody, but you feel either misunderstood or like they don't, they don't want to get to know you. They're not interested in getting to know you or they know you well, but are not showing, um, emotional investment in your well-being. Essentially, if you don't have those two pieces, then you're going to feel lonely with the person that you're with. Um, so the antidote to that feeling is to create those knowing and caring pieces. Um, and one of the one of the crazy things about when I wrote that article was I thought that this was a completely gender neutral thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but men and women have had dramatically different reactions to it. And I feel like that's you'll see a piece from me on that soon. The oh, differences yeah. between men and women. <laughs> How so you mean different reactions to this article itself? To to that notion. To so that, essentially okay. Like a lot of men commented on that piece and said, you know, like this just isn't realistic for men or yeah, that sounds great. But like men can't, can't really do that. Can't really do. They can't really do it. They can't really do the knowing and caring. And I had the same reaction. I was like, what do you mean? Um, But, but I've been talking to a lot of men about this and it seems that they, especially the knowing part, which is surprising to me, a lot of American men have a very, very hard time getting to know one another and talking about anything that matters in their lives. Is so, this, you, you say American men, is this different in other cultures in your experience or? I think it is. I think there are, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know any specific examples except my husband happens to be from Armenia, um, <laughs> which is in the Middle East. Uh-huh. Um, and they are, <laughs> And, and he said that this is not an issue there. Like every, like loneliness is not a thing there. Um, and that applies to men as well. Like men will, you know, play chess in the courtyard all day long and talk about their lives and feel incredibly close to one another. Hmm. So I think, I think it's kind of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. I what is that? This Why is do us. you think? Why is that? Is it the, the whole, I don't know, something about American and, independence uh yeah i don't know what do you think yeah i mean your guess is probably as good as mine um it would just be speculation but i i think that you know 
our <laughs> our love of individual happiness and the pursuit of individual happiness can kind of backfire in some ways. Um, and, and the independence thing for sure. And then there are some more just practical things like more people live alone than ever before. Mm-hmm. So if you just happen to live alone, you know, you might be more prone to these feelings or it might just be it just becomes harder to develop relationships naturally, quote unquote. Right. So, again, this article, you know, the, the big question is sort of like what makes some relationships feel better than others? And your answer is this closeness. Can you give some examples of like those relationships that are good? You know, I mean, some specific mm-hmm. examples for those of us who who need an example of, <laughs> of what to go for. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, what does true closeness look like? And, um, you know, just an idea of, of what we should be kind of going for, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and and this this won't happen instantly. You know right. these are these are actions that you take over over quite a, a period of time, and it and it grows. Um, and the other thing I want to say before I answer your question is that the way I think about closeness is that it's like a spectrum. Mm. Um, so you can be very 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 close to somebody, or you could just be moderately close, um, and you can kind of move that relationship along the spectrum depending on how much both of you do this knowing and caring stuff. Okay. Um, but an example would be some of those, I mean, I, hopefully your listeners have had these moments where you just kind of know what somebody's thinking, you know, you, yeah. you, you know what motivates them enough, you know how they react to things enough. Um, you know what they need, what they value, what they're interested in. You, you understand their inner world enough to know how they're reacting to something that's happening. Um, that's a, that's a closeness thing. Mm -hmm. That's a knowing thing. And then caring, a lot of it has to do with emotional capacity. Um, so if you're in a relationship where you just, you, the two of you don't even have to say anything to each other, you just kind of can sense what the other person is feeling and can be there with them. Um, and if you have, you know, those two things going on at the same time, in in my opinion, it's like, what more could you ask of somebody, you know? Right. Um, to get back to the, the mental illnesses, Mm -hmm. what's the, um, What's the path of treatment look like? Like when, you know, if you're going to say illness is tacked, uh, sorry, loneliness is tacked onto each of these illnesses. Like, so there's depression and loneliness, social anxiety and loneliness, addiction and mm-hmm. loneliness, hoarding and loneliness. How then, uh, how then to heal? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's not a simple question either. Yeah. There's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of different paths you can take. Um, so I'm a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and coaching is one is, is, I think it's a, it's a very helpful thing for people to do. If you need to delve deep into your past and deal with issues from the past, mm-hmm. um, then therapy is often a good route. Um, and if you feel like you need a diagnosis to move forward, then, then therapy is the right route. Kinsman is the editor-at-large at Tasting Table and the founder of Chefs with Issues, a site that helps people in the restaurant industry deal with mental health issues. A lifelong struggle with her anxiety led her to write the book High Anxiety. What is anxiety in your experience? Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, for a long time it was hard to separate anxiety from anything else. It's just the way that I am. It's the way my body is built. It's the way that my, my head functions. Um, it's, you know, it, it wasn't even, I, I didn't even understand recent until the last few years that anxiety was technically what was at play. I had been diagnosed as, uh, as depressed, um, chronic depression when I was about 14 years old. And the anxiety factor of that hadn't been separated out for me. They're part and parcel generally mm-hmm. for, for a whole lot of people, but I didn't realize that I had generalized anxiety 
anxiety disorder until I, uh, so, you know, I, I was going to see a new therapist and he wrote it down as my diagnosis. It's just something that I, that had been inextricable from how I frame the world. My hands always shook, that my stomach always hurt, that, uh, you know, I had thoughts cycling through my head in the middle of the night. Uh, I didn't realize until, uh, that diagnosis and until I started taking, um, many years ago, a combination antidepressant and anti-anxiety drug that it was the first time in my life that I wasn't suffering from the physical symptoms of anxiety. This was an absolute revelation to me that I could go into a position, into a situation and address it uh, from a from a healthier way where I wasn't just trying to make my stomach stop hurting or to mm -hmm. make my hands stop shaking or to make whatever physical symptoms I was experiencing stop that I, I was able to pull away and rationally decide how I want to address this situation where I wasn't just trying to mollify, but I was trying to solve uh, for just in a, in a better sort of way. I didn't realize I was, I was anxious until I wasn't. And so it just didn't occur to me that I was because, you know, in the same way that if you're, if you're a fish, you don't think about the fact that you're wet just right. because that's your, your constant state of being. Once I became aware of it and my physical responses to situations, I was able to get a little bit better of a, a handle on it, but still it's, you know, it's a constant companion for me. Right. When I was fifth or sixth grade and I was being bullied by a teacher uh, who was, she, uh, didn't appreciate the fact that, you know, I was, I was a smart kid and I wasn't afraid to ask questions or, or, or speak up in class. And she made my life a living hell. So I, I, I just started to physically shut down and there was mono going around in the school. And so it was determined by my doctor and my parents that that's what I had. So I stepped out of school for a uh, for, you know, a couple of weeks or something and, you know, just went home and, and slept a lot and, and sort of recovered myself a little bit. But I remember writing this like terribly, um, angsty poem and then <laughs> definitely on the topic of, of loneliness, but really feeling physically separated from the world. Like there was a dome between me and, and the rest of the world. And, you know, this is at fifth or sixth grade. And then, uh, you know, sort of went on with my life a little bit. And then, uh, when I got to eighth grade and freshman year, I was being very, very badly bullied by my best friend. As happens with, you know, teenage girls, this, this, this happens. And there was absolute sort of psychological warfare going on. Like Lao Tzu has nothing on, <laughs> on uh, you know, adolescent girls. And I really started to physically shut down. And we were attributing this to, again, a case of mono, um, mm. that I, I was getting tired and I was feeling, my mother and I invented this word gricky, which was a combination of gray and icky. And, uh, and I just stopped going to school and I would try to get ready in the morning and either I couldn't get into the car or we would drive up to the school and I just couldn't. And I just found my, I was slipping away from the world yeah. and I was sleeping. And eventually I remember laying at the bottom of the stairs. I was too tired to get up and go to my bed. And I remember laying on the floor saying, help, help, I need help. And they brought me to a doctor. They put me through a battery of tests. Um, they thought I had cancer. They, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. They found out there wasn't anything physically wrong with me. And so I started seeing a therapist mm -hmm. who diagnosed me as depressed. Yeah. And how linked, and you've, you've spoken about this a little so far, but um, loneliness and depression mm -hmm. or loneliness and mental illness, you know, how linked are those things for you? Um, for me, I'm, I'm a classic ambivert. It's, mm -hmm. it's very funny because I, I need a lot of alone time. I, I go and I, it, I charge my battery by mm -hmm. being around other people and really connecting with the world. And once it's full, sometimes I, I have to flee and I have to go and be by myself. Um, if I'm at a party, I sometimes need to go and find a quiet corner and be by myself. If I go to a convention where I'm seeing a million friends and see, talking to strangers, I can go and be tremendously social. And then I need to go away uh, for a little while. Um, because I crave so much alone time, I it's, it's not very often that I'm incredibly lonely. But when I am, I, I feel it really acutely. Yeah. Talk to me about that. I mean, this the book comes after a few articles you've already written on this topic of of anxiety and you know can you tell me about the decision to go public with with these um mental illnesses you know with depression and and, and anxiety um 
and how that might have made you feel more or less lonely. I don't know if loneliness plays in here, but um. oh, it it absolutely did. It's it's the best thing I ever did for my own mental health. I I I was really really incredibly lucky to work where I did. I started writing about this um, when I worked at CNN, and they there's an extraordinary staff of people there who were open to these more and more uh, personal stories. Um, it started out with my. Uh, I, you know, I worked for um, Etocracy, which the the food blog there, and then the food site. Uh, we were part of a bigger uh, arm of it called CNN Living, and we would be doing these theme weeks. And an editor who I hadn't worked with before uh, just sort of assumed that I wrote essays. I had written one, only one sort of personal thing before, where um, the editor of our Geek Out blog came to me and wanted me to write about being goth, and I got a little personal on on that because it was that was definitely about alienation and, and loneliness because we were living in a pre-internet society where you know I was the only weird kid, you know, mm-hmm. people yelling freak at me on the street, and you know I I wore my outsiderness like a mantle there. I tried to make myself like as as different as possible, you know, as a goth in, you know, late 80s suburban Kentucky. Um, but I, I wrote about that and wrote about connecting, uh, you know, across the, you know, ac- across the darkness. Uh, and I think this made this this editor uh, think, oh, that's what she does. So we were doing a body image thing. And, and I sort of stepped up and I said, well, I could write something about like having a big nose. And she said, okay. And I, and I wrote this piece. It was really vulnerable. And it was really, you know, a, a scary thing to do. But it's not like, you know, one of those things that can be denied. It's not like, you know, sort of self-image thing where somebody thinks about something about themselves that isn't true. It's like, I objectively objectively have a big nose. It's not like anyone was going to argue about that. So I decided to just put it out there. The response to it was, was shocking and amazing. And people really, really connected to it. And this editor just, and, and a new editor started and she came in just assuming that's what I did. So she would say, Hey, this topic is coming up. Why don't you write this piece? Okay. And I just, um, when it came to first then writing about depression is a piece I'd wanted to write for a really long time. And I think, I don't remember if it was pegged to a particular awareness week or something, published it. I remember I hit send to my editor and I crumpled down on the floor. It was, it was just a buildup of, you know, 30 some years of, uh, needing to get this story out. It came back like a tidal wave all of these people who maybe hadn't seen their particular experience with depression um, put into words in that particular way. And it gave me new purpose in life. And it also freed me up to talk about something that I hadn't felt comfortable talking with before. I I was always out with friends, sort of. I talk about this as a coming out. They always knew that I had some things going on, but maybe just the people closest to me. I project a really positive and bubbly image out in the world. You know, I go on TV, I go on the radio, and and people think a very particular thing about me. That's because I hide myself away when I'm not in a good spot. Um, mm. You know, with writing these articles, it gives me permission to be real with people and have them be real with me. Um, when I wrote the piece about anxiety, it was almost by way of apology to friends. It was, it was during the holiday time. I was missing parties. I was not coming out and seeing friends and, and they were hurt. I was tired of hurting people, um, who thought I maybe was just blowing them off. And I, you know, I had to come out and say like, sometimes I can't leave my house. Sometimes this is what's going on. It is. And it's never, you know, I want to reach out to you. I can't, I I can't even respond to your email. I'm, I'm feeling too low and too terrible. And I had a, a friend respond to it. She's uh, been one of my best friends for a long time. And now she's the therapist. And she was saying, Oh God, I am so sorry. I, you know, cause she had given me a hard time sometimes and saying, I didn't know. And I said, I've had you know, at this point, like 40 some years of hiding, I'm really good at this. Um, this, this gave me permission not to be okay Mm. in public. And it gave a lot of other people felt like they had permission, like, Oh, if she's going through this, it's okay that I am too. And it's made me, it's, it's made me so much less lonely. I feel like so much less of a, of a freak. Because yeah. I know that so many other people feel this way. And if somebody needs to think of me as damaged because of this, uh, that's fine for them. That's how they need to frame it. But I don't feel that way. Yeah. What about the flip side? I mean, clearly talking about this topic has been good for you and and people have connected with you through it. But, um, you know, writing as a profession, sharing your thoughts publicly can can also be alienating. You know, you're opening yourself up to criticism. Um 
Have you experienced that in your career? Oh oh my God. Very, so little. It's been, it's been, I, I think what I'm finding more and more is how incredibly prevalent this is. It's, it's so it's so shocking to me. The people who have felt the need to come to me in an aggressive or whatever kind of way, almost inevitably end up talking to me about it. Um, Mm. because, and I've, I've come to realize that the people who approach me, if they have approached me in any kind of nasty or negative way or aggressively, I, I, I talk to them. I talk down trolls like it's like like a hobby. Oh, I know you're not scared. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, and the thing is, because these people are operating out of a place of pain, people who are well don't do that. People mm. who feel great uh, and, and really happy about their lives and stuff don't approach in that way. So I've learned that if somebody wants to come at me with any of this kind of stuff, they have something that they need taken off their, their shoulders. So, do you have an example of that? Um, yeah, I used to deal with CNN trolls all the time and, uh, people would, you know, uh, and we would host live chats with mm-hmm. some of these like in, in the comments or, uh, you know, or sometimes we would do Google hangouts or, or something. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, some people would come at me, you know, and say, you know, well, what about this? What about this? Or, or, or just sort of like, why don't you just go and talk to, you know, a friend who needs that or whatever. And I'd be like, you know, have you talked to a friend? Have you whatever? And just listen to them like people. And inevitably they would come out. Well, you know, I, you know, there were, I remember this one person, he was a veteran and he had seen and experienced so many horrible things. And he w- it turned out he was angry at the system and angry that he hadn't gotten enough care from the system. And we ended up, ha- you know, having a private conversation. There was somebody who was being super aggressive at me on, on Twitter. Like, you know, why, you know, you don't understand. Why are you feeling the need to talk about this? And we eventually took it to, t- to Twitter DM and they were saying, and, and this person started saying, I'm so sorry. You know, I've just been so frustrated because I I can't get good care. Um, hmm. It's great that you're so game to get to continue those conversations. I mean, it's. I, I'm thinking. I've I've been so. God, I've been lucky. I realize I'm in a place of intense privilege here. The fact that I ha- did, I have had employers who have been so open to this, and that I have an incredibly supportive spouse and friends and insurance and all of these things that so 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 many people do not have, they do not have these resources. They cannot, uh, work from home because they can't leave their house. They don't have the, the medical care. They might come from a culture where therapy is, is taboo. I talk to so many people from so many backgrounds, socioeconomic, racial, religious, who just have to bear their pain in private because they are, they're afraid of what their family is going to say. They're afraid of what their community is going to say. They don't, have access to a therapist, to a therapist. I mean, I am so lucky that I can be public about this, that what I really, the end goal for me is, you know, I know that I am never going to be cured of this. I'm only ever going to manage this better and I'm getting better and better, better at it all the time. The end goal is to have more of a public dialogue about this. So people who are in an incredibly vulnerable, vulnerable position who feel like they can't say something to their boss, their spouse, their, you know, whoever it is, they feel like they can't do it, that we get to a place in our culture where it's like saying, I have, I have the flu and I can't come in. I have the, you know, whatever. And you just go to a doctor like you would for any other ailment. I mean, I hope I, you know, I just want to start a little ripple if I possibly can. I mean, that's, that's, I, I feel a responsibility about this now that I've opened this Pandora's box and I, and I can't cure anybody. I can't be anybody's therapist, but if I can brush the path in front of them a little bit, that's what I need to do. As it says on Amazon, at least, so correct now if need be, (laughs) Um, it explores how and why anxiety has come to be one of the principal defining aspects of contemporary women's daily lives. So why women especially? Well, you know, it's funny, the language has changed around them that Mm -hmm. um, they're, I mean, originally it was uh, sort of my agent and my editor had wanted me to frame it around women. And I actually asked if we could, uh, if I could broaden the scope. It's, it's so, God, it's so universal, but there, there are some things that are very specific to women. I think probably, especially when it comes to parenthood or non-parenthood, you know, I'm not a parent and um, I talk about that a lot in the book because I, you know, I, I've always known I didn't want children and I can't pretend that a big chunk of that is not wanting to pass on, you know, a lot of the stuff that I have, you know, my, my mother has a lot of degenerative things and a lot of, you know, 
uh, you know, mental illness. And my grandmother did before that, you know, whether she addressed it or not. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something where I just realized I can't, I don't want to do that to a kid. I don't know how good of a parent I would be because of that. And also I've just never had that particular driver. So, uh, you know, and that leads to a whole bunch of, you know, at, at first when I was, when I was dating, I was, you know, I was lucky to find a guy who also didn't want to have kids, mm-hmm. but I know for a lot of people, that's a factor. They're really, they're worried that they're not going to find love because they do or do not want children. Once they have the children, I can't imagine anything more terrifying that you're not just responsible for you, that you have this person out in the world who might be the greatest source of joy. And, oh my God, I can't even imagine what a, terrified parent I would would be if that child was out of my sight. I'd be worried that he or she were, was going to be hit by a bus or, or somebody wasn't kind to them or, or something. So I, I think there is a particular maternal um, part to that. I think we also have a lot of physiological things. I know, you know, at various points, you know, in my cycle, um, anxiety is worse. I know if I'm PMSing, I'm going to worry so much more. I think we are judged on different standards than men are. But once I started really having conversation at first, I was sort of trying to restrict the conversations I was having to women. So many men opened up and it couldn't be, it absolutely couldn't be ignored that Mm. this is very male as well. They have a different set of expectations and, and, and difficulties. Um, so the book ended up not being overly gendered, um, I suppose, except where some of the things had to do with, uh, kind of beauty standards and, and motherhood and, or, and non motherhood. So, mm. you know, we'll see who, who responds to it, but I, you know, it was, it was very important to me to have that, you know, discussion at the end. Like, I don't want it to be especially like sort of feminine on the cover or anything. And I think the, I think the cover is pretty <laughs> gender neutral. And originally I think it had a subtitle that had to do with women. And I asked if that could please be changed. Mm-hmm. And luckily they were super responsive. Well, yeah. Cause you mentioned dating. So I want to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. I know on the love bites yeah. uh, podcast, you talked about how anxiety affects people's dating and dining lives. And actually in the example you bring up there, it's, it's the man, you know, with, with the mental illness and, um, how once he mentions that on, I guess, a first date, it just changed the entire energy yeah. and, and was a sad bummer for their possible future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you experienced that yourself? Have you seen other examples of that, how mental illness and anxiety makes finding love difficult? Oh, absolutely. And well, I think the thing is, if I think there's a lot of people out there Golly, I've always made a joke that I wish we could all wear shirts or pins or something with our uh, diagnosis on it. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people who have these issues and don't even know it, mm. you know. So whether somebody discloses up front or not doesn't mean, you know, somebody who may have had a, a diagnosis is probably getting treated for it. And there might be, I'm sure there are a bazillion people out there who have all these things, these things going on and just nobody's ever addressed it with them. Um, yeah, it's definitely been a factor in my relationships on both sides. I've been, you know, the partner of somebody with, um, with depression and, you know, and with anxiety, you know, on more than one occasion, or I've been that person. And finally, when I, and I, you know, I dated one guy who just didn't understand why I would want to go to a therapist. Well, can't you just talk, you know, with a friend about that? Can't you talk with me? You know, basically, you know, uh, it was, and he, he, I think he came from a family where a whole lot of stuff wasn't addressed. Yeah. And then that's reminiscent of the comment, um, oh, on your CNN article. I mean, it must come from a place of pain or anger or lacking somewhere. Right? Oh, it absolutely. You know, oh, well it came back around. Like then after we broke up, you know, he told me some things about his mother and then he got married and he, he actually wrote me a note and said, I am so sorry that I ever treated you that way. You know, my wife, deals with all of these things. And I just didn't, I didn't understand. And I'm so sorry. And, you know, I, when I met my husband, I was in a place where, you know, I love my life. I love my friends. I had specifically taken a break from dating. I'd had a, a really, really traumatic dating incident where I I was lied to so terribly about, um, somebody was incredibly dishonest with me, but everything, including their name, uh, yeah. Somebody I met wow. online who lied and lied and lied. Um, and then I was really stupid and stayed with them. Uh, and they, you know, suffer from a, a fair amount of stuff, um, themselves that they were not getting, uh, help for. Um, but so I had taken a break from, from dating and, uh, I, I was at a point where it was actually a new year's day. Um, when I woke up and I thought, you know what? I love my friends. I love my life. I love what I'm doing for a living. 
you know, I, you know, had a, a friend who I could <laughs> go and see if I needed some needs taken care of. And, you know, a few times <laughs> here, you know, lived in a different country and, you know, we were good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought if this is the rest of my life, that's, that's, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm happy. Um, what is the thing, you know, and it was a new year's day and I thought, Oh, what the heck, why not? And I put up an ad, uh, you know, it was, I went in through salon had dating, um, and he went in through nerve and, you know, and I, the first time I met him, like I, oh my, my head exploded. I just, we'd been running for a couple of weeks and I met him and just like the air changed. Mm. And I was, I disclosed with him right up front, like, Hey, look, you know, I, I, you know, I have, you know, I, at that point I was on medication. I'm like, you know, I take medication for depression and anxiety. I go down holes sometimes when I get really depressed or, you know, I hadn't even super properly identified anxiety at, at that point, you know, and it's up to you if you want to deal with this or not. Um, and he, he's try me and, you know, and he sees a therapist too. And we've always just, he's never held it against me. Um, and the biggest sort of thing in our marriage has been, he's a fixer and he wants nothing more than for me to, to feel good and be happy. And he's never tried to change me. He wants to help me. And I think the biggest thing has been me saying to him, like, look, I love you. And I know you're doing this because you love me. Um, you're not going to, you're not going to fix me. The best thing you can possibly do is live your life and, you know, go out and do the thing. Don't, I would die if I thought that I was keeping you from your life, go and do the things. Just tell me you're going to come home and, you know, and you're not going to leave. And he's been so incredible. And I've been, I've developed a language with him, um, where, you know, it can say, you know, we do a lot of check-in. How are you feeling? How are you, you know, how are you, you know, how, how are you physically feeling? How are you emotionally feeling? And he's, he's never, and he knows that my worst fear is becoming, you know, debilitated like my mother and stuff. And so we're just, he sees that I put in, that I put in the work that mm -hmm. I express myself, that I see a therapist, that I try to be kind to myself when I can. I'm very, very bad at that. Um, and it's, I, I lucked out that I found a guy who was willing to do this because I know other friends of mine feel like they're going to be alone forever. Um, and, I, and I think it's also because they just haven't let themselves get help or just, God, they just haven't gotten lucky yet. I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's hard. To listen to past episodes of The Lonely Hour or to see what's coming up next, head to thelonelyhour.com.